G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. Good day, everyone. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast Summer Edition and uh, in the grip of summer now, also in the grip of smoke haze around Melbourne and uh, wherever you're listening from, if you have been affected by these terrible bushfires, our uh, thoughts are with you. Hope you and yours are okay and uh, all your property's okay and um, if you've got breathing difficulties and you're in the city even and putting up with this surreal sort of smoke haze... Um, yeah, it's like something out of a science fiction movie. As I say, a very good morning to my co-host, Mark Fine. Strange days and, of course, the fires that have really caught the imagination of the world have really hit home in Victoria and East Gippsland. And only on the weekend, you know, one of our firefighters paid the ultimate price. And it's incredible to think that we've got so many Australians out there Either it doesn't matter whether it's volunteer or professional work, risking risking their lives on a daily basis, and we that cover sport glibly use the word heroics, hero. The, they're really I know it's been said over and over, but you got to make footy cards of these blokes. Get, I, get fiery cards out there well, in the kids' hands. I think it's a really good point. I think it's really driven home just who the the true heroes in society are. And um, yeah, the the I'm sure as time goes on, we'll hear more amazing stories and even just the amount of videos I've seen on social media of. Um, people out there just rescuing wildlife, and uh, you yep. know it's it it is just surreal this whole experience. I just can't imagine what it would be like to be the mother and wife of, and I've seen a few examples of this of the father and three sons that go off to fight fires. That's her entire family. They're not in a fire zone. They were in Gippsland, but not in a, an area of immediate danger. But they went headlong into the fire. That's your entire family. That's the farm. That's everything. Well, I guess it's the modern equivalent of, of a war. Uh, yeah, exactly. And it, uh, it is a war of sorts, and I don't think uh, that's being overly dramatic. Um, all right, we've got a lot to get through today. Let's uh, say a quick thank you again to our wonderful sponsors. Burger people are good people if they stick to the, stick to the, stick to the winning formula. <laughs> 80 years, 81st this year, means Andrews Hamburgers, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, are the best blokes on the planet. They have not... They There's no sort of um, Andrew's Cafe or Andrew's uh, Quiche Burgers or Special Burgers or Kitsch Burgers. Just do what they do brilliantly and keep doing it. Beautiful burgers, great service, and... I know you love their buns, but Some I, love their buns. Chip, I love their chips. I love their chips. Great chips. Tender meat patties. Chippity chips. Uh, fresh tomato and lettuce. Your basic... Beautiful burger. It's all there at 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, Andrews Hamburgers. And while you're in the area, why not uh, check out some of the handiwork by our other sponsor? Nick's Bartels and Hardwick Build Co. Look, that part of town used to be a pretty hard knock place. Uh, Port Melbourne, Albert Park, South Melbourne, Middle Park. 
pretty notorious for waterside workers and and rough blokes doing rough things. And who would have thought that all they had to do was sit on their property to be millionaires? But to really take best advantage of that property windfall that they've had, why not get the best best in renovations? Because they'll be able to fund it through financing. And Nick Spartel and Hardwick Bilko, that's their that's their bailiwick. That's where Dyson Heppel's house is, Scott Pendlebury's in that area, Mike Sheehan's, all done by Hardwick and Spartel's Bilko. And you can get yours done as well. All right, no messing around. Let's get straight into it. On Footyology, Newsfeed. Rightio, well, uh, there has been a bit of footy news around uh, and we were talking about these horrible bushfires and uh, one of the, I guess, positives to emerge from this is the amount of philanthropy that's been going on. Uh, Incredibly large donations from celebrities, not just in Australia, but all over the world and uh, various organisations and um, the AFL, uh, not unexpectedly, has come to the party in a couple of ways. Finally, a, uh, a donation first up of a total of $2.5 million to the Bushfire Appeal. That consists of uh, $1.35 million the AFL administration has tipped in, 900000 coming from the clubs and 250000 coming from the AFL Players Association um, special fund set aside for... These sorts of things, and uh, when, when I heard it was broken down, I was worried. AFL loves doing contra deals with advertising, and I, I was yeah. thinking, what have they done? A bit of cash, and anybody affected by the fire, uh, we can put your logo on a <laughs> no, a little tacky even for them. So uh, well done on that score, and also another idea which has emerged. And uh, it's allowed for the return of State of Origin football. Victoria will be taking on an All-Stars team at Marvel Stadium on February the 28th, um, part of a doubleheader, an AFLW game um, on first. Uh, Damien Hardwick to coach the Victorians and John Longmire to coach the All-Stars. What do you make of that? Well, first of all, this is a leap year. Oh, it is too, yeah. I thought they were going to do it on February the 29th. Ah, yes. And then they could install it as a regular thing every February the 29th. I I thought that would have been great. And uh, an impending happy birthday to all those adults about to turn five or four. (laughs) So I'm a big fan of the concept of State of Origin. I believe there's a place for it. This is, of course, first and foremost, a fundraiser. And there is a sense that this game may be more of a American-style all-star game with little defense but a whole lot of scoring. I like that the I like that the AFL have really sort of, of course, it's it, it is about bushfire relief, but I think they're taking the opportunity to reinforce the idea that they'd like the players to take it seriously, mm. just to test the waters a bit with the public and the players to see whether we can get some traction here because I believe they would like to have state of origin football, but they don't have the full support of all the participants as yet. So this is a an opportunity for the AFL to gauge something and at the same time, of course, raise what I imagine would be a... I reckon it'll raise $5 million. Well, the uh, players themselves, certainly the senior players, uh, have come out strongly in support of the state of origin concept. Uh, the club's obviously a lot more reticent for obvious reasons. The public... This is where I've always had my doubts, certainly in Victoria, because we, we do tend to romanticise it a bit. Um, 
you know, I, I, and I'm sure you have been too. We, we've both been to state of origin games where crowds have been twenty thousand. Uh, I've been to a couple of bad games at Waverley, yeah, where, where it was sparse and yep. <clears throat> and and superfluous to needs. Well, there was one in 1978 uh, where Victoria beat WA by close to 100 points. There was one in 1980 against WA, which I, I think is one probably you're focusing on. That I think is that, that one Vin Catoggio played in one. Uh, that that would have been it. Yeah, um, I remember Wes Fong played pretty well for WA. That was 1980, and I yep. think that got about 30,000. I went to one in 1992. It was part of a carnival, and it was a night game at the MCG Wednesday night. Didn't start till 8:30, and I think that only got 20 odd thousand too. And really, the the only two games that Victorian Punters, um, you know, sort of remember fondly yeah, the one in '89 where Dunstall, Ablett, Lockett all played together, and there was ninety-three thousand, I think, and they smashed South Australia. Yep. And the Teddy Whitten game, which um, you know, Teddy, of course, memorably doing that lap or farewell lap before the start of the game. That really wasn't about the game, and that got, I think, fifty odd thousand to that. But um, it's one of those things that I think, uh, even in South Australia and WA, once the clubs from there came into the AFL, it sort of became redundant as a concept. Now, don't get me wrong. I think this is a great idea, and I think it's perfectly... um, It's the perfect sort of concept for this sort of occasion. I think the logistics, I think the clubs fretting about the welfare of players, of course, in that 89 game, we saw Tony Hall famously uh, mowed down by Andy Andy Collins. Collins. But this is... Do you subscribe to the... uh, negativity around or, or the the fact that these games should not be played because of the risk to senior players. I can I it's I can't fathom it. Did people not think that clubs like Manchester United, Liverpool, Juventus, Barcelona, who invest hundreds of millions, billions of dollars in their playing list, are not equally concerned when the players that are central to their needs regularly play for their nation? It's part of sport. It's it's mm. high representation. I just can't believe that we are neurotically worried about one of our players getting injured. Um, oh yeah, no, I, I'm I'm not. And it's of... an even chance. Yeah. All players play. In fact, it disadvantages the better teams who have more players in. So in a way, it adds to the equalisation of the game. Yeah, that's. I mean, I look. I I just I'm a bit dubious about the amount of interest there actually is. It's one of those things that. You know, it talks a good game, but when it comes to the crunch, do people actually get behind it? You I, know? Think, I think the AFL could sell it. And I certainly, a couple of years ago, you wrote down the state of origin teams, which I did, and WA had such a magnificent side. Mm. So the power does shift. And I, I really believe that, especially if the allies, it's hard to engender a lot of. Uh, loyal support for an Allies team, but that was a great side as well. Yeah, well, I I mean, look, the last time we saw anything like this, and I was there, I was doing the boundary, it was uh, Victoria taking on, again, they were called the All-Stars, I think, rather than the Allies. That was 2008. And 75,000 people turned up to that game. However, it was the quietest 75,000 I've ever heard. And at one stage, and it was a pretty... Decent game and a pretty close game, but at one stage in the last quarter, I remember the crowd started doing the Mexican wave. Not so. good. That's all right. <laughs> did, did an all-star team once wear the Herald, 
Herald Sun. Yeah, well, that rooster. was the yeah the um there was a bushfire. Oh, the, the, the Sun Rooster. Yeah, well, the Sun All Stars. Um, yeah. the Sun News Pictorial. Now the Herald Sun. They used to name their team of the year, and of course, after the horrible Ash Wednesday bushfires in '83, mm-hmm. they had a game out of Waverley between the Sun All Stars and Carlton, who were the reigning premier. Okay. okay. Um, and uh, yes, it was a, a white and orange jumper from memory, but yeah, uh, yeah the Sun All Stars used to be a big deal. If, Look, if the age sponsored it, would Ick Potter have been on the <laughs> front? Potter, the old Ick. Ah, there's a blast from the past. I wonder if you walked into the age these days and said Ick Potter, everyone would look at you like you were crazy. Uh, perhaps sometimes if you said journalism, they'd look at you like you were crazy as well. I could never understand why his name was Ick Potter, not Itik Potter or Ick Poa. Why did they drop the first the? Right, Ick- for anyone wondering what the hell we're talking about, Ick Potter was a little newspaper... Anim, um, cartoon figure, and it stood for in the classified pages of the age. Yeah. So there were two these in it, but only one of the these registered. We well, could say it Potter, could you? Can't even Ick say po- that. Ick power. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Let's. Uh, we're going to run through a few more um, clubs in a preview sense. I've now been through every club for this uh, war and peace like season preview. Thing I'm doing for a certain publication, which uh, you can see in oh, a month or so. Um, but we're going to pick out a few clubs every week and just run through them. I thought today we'd have a look at Adelaide, interesting Geelong, and the Western Bulldogs. So I reckon yes. you're going to find it hard to get a more interesting three than this three. Well, they are interesting, intriguing. I should say. Let's start with Adelaide. Okay, yes. so absolute. Changing of the guard for the Crows. Now, if you need reminding, we've had uh, a new coach. Don Pike has gone. Matthew Nick's in charge. Taylor Walker has uh, stood down as captain. And some of the Crows' best-known faces are gone. Uh, Eddie Betts, Richard Douglas, Josh Jenkins, Sam Jacobs, Alex Keith, and Hugh Greenwood, uh, automatically making the Crows a much younger and less experienced group in 2020. How do you think they're going to go? First of all, is this the first time in their history that they approach a season with rebuild and bullishness not on the me- rebuild on the menu, bullishness not on the menu? Um, Even their first game, they were going yeah. to put the Hawks on a fork, which yeah. they did. Yeah, no, possibly right. Possibly right. They've always sort of tried to be in contention. Yeah, the um, bi- and, and the big brother in town, they've never taken a back seat and planned for the future like this. mm the writing was on the wall last year. I I really admire Don Pike. He felt that he had run a race, but he made some brave decisions last year. Read Bryce Gibbs and a few players, other players besides. So the wheels had been set in motion. This is the right move for the club. As far as what they can achieve in 2020, there are limits. But it's sort of, I've been on this journey. You have as well as an Essendon supporter. There is a pleasure to be had out of watching the slow development of young players. It becomes the stakes raise each year, but the first year is quite enjoyable. Yeah, oh, look, it can be. It's just I'm still quite surprised at how quickly it's come about. You know, at the end of two years after they were in a grand final and a, a warm grand final favourite, no less, in 2017. Haven't a few of their star players lost currency? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, look, in terms of just, uh, you know, practically how big a change is going to be. So you've got two of their three leading goal kickers this year, Betts and Jenkins, are gone. 
Um, uh, midfield, uh, there's changes to the midfield with uh, Greenwood going, uh, Douglas retiring. Um, we don't know whether Gibbs is going to be a major part of, of Matthew Nix's plans or not. I, I, think, I would doubt it. I think their strong suit is definitely their defence. Now, you've got Daniel Talia down there, Rory Laird, one of the best rebound defenders in the game, Brody Smith, Jake Kelly, a bit underrated. You've got Tom Doty returning from serious injury, so that's a plus yeah. for them. Um, but I think, again, you know, without harping on it, the players who have left... Um, so Betts, Douglas, Jenkins, Jacobs, Keith, Greenwood, Ellis Yolman, Andy Otten retired. Those players alone, they account for more than 1,100 games uh, AFL experience. You know, it's a lot to go out in one hit. Interestingly, the David Mackay meter can still be used. Yes. He's a stayer, isn't he? He's a survivor. Yeah. It's, you always feel he's the 22nd player picked, and if he is in the team that they have run out of ideas. That's not fair to him. He's been a good survivor at league level. But they'll look... There's a few players that they've um, sort of uh, showcased or, or debuted in the last couple of years, if they kick on. Yeah, well, I think I think Crows fans probably last year wanted to see more of the younger guys. Now, who are we talking about? The ones that come immediately to mind for me are Darcy Fogarty. Well, who, he, he's been invested with a great deal of faith for the future. Big, powerful forward. Booming kick. Yeah, and I think they're looking to him to be a 50-goal-a-year player, potentially. A couple of others that showed some signs. Uh, Elliot Himmelberg, uh, Harry's brother. I thought yes. he showed a bit on occasion. Jordan Gallucci. The Mo. The great moustache, but uh, can play a bit as well. Chase Jones is another one who they'd, showed a bit as well. They'd want him to step up. So, uh, interesting year for the Crows. Of course, um, Riley O'Brien has a big year ahead of him. Of course. Uh, Huey. Baby Huey. Yep. There's a few of those sort of baby Huey type ruckmen around now. Sean Darcy's another one. It is his time. So, uh, you give the Crows any sort of finals chance? Oh, not no. None. Zero. Mm, well, I don't know about zero, but I, I, zero. Th- I think they'd really struggle. All right, let's talk about the Cats. Uh, they're always interesting. And... Um, I guess disappointment at the end of last year, obviously not even getting to a grand final after being top of the ladder for so long. But you've got to be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I look at Geelong, whereas this time last year I was looking at Geelong and thinking, yeah, definitely on a downward curve, fringes of the eight, I think I put them. I think a lot of people didn't even put them in the eight. Um, this time I'm looking at them and thinking, well, they've got to be a, a serious chance. Even the fact they didn't get to the grand final, they lost their two finals by 10 points and 19 points yeah. to Collingwood and Richmond, respectively. So they're pretty, yeah, they, were, they were not terrible. Pretty damn close. Um, one massive loss, of course, is Tim Kelly from that midfield. However, um, two fairly big-name inclusions in Josh Jenkins, who we just talked about, and uh, your man, Jack Stephen. Yeah, Josh Jenkins, I don't think, adds anything to the mix there. He just adds to the... Oh, that. really? Jeez, I do. Adds the, well, he's got to play behind Hawkins he's, and then play as a lead-up forward. But Hawkins is a hit-up forward. Hawkins had become, has become this great hit-up forward. And that's really what Josh Jenkins is. Uh, uh, he leads out of the goal square. He's not a contested mark. No, fair point. They've got Radigalera as well. I, I just think they needed another tall, strong key forward. Well, look, they've got a champion ruckman who's one of the best in the comp in Reece Stanley. What are you looking at me for? Didn't you watch postcards last night? No. On postcards, Reece Stanley and his partner were on with Rebecca Judd showing us the high life in Geelong. 
I mean, she's a leading <laughs> model, his, his wife. Okay. And, of course, he was presented as champion Geelong Ruckman in one of the oh, really? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do they think people that watch postcards are, are, are non-intersecting group with football fans well, so they maybe, can just sell, they they can sell them that mistruth? I wonder if Reese got an invite to Judd Cheller, which was on recently. Anyway, get on with it. Their, <laughs> their ruck is a concern. Um, Dangerfield remains so important to their success, doesn't he? Because those two close finals involved a lot of patty. Yeah, look, I I think where they've really become a better side last year was that um, forward pressure, which they, they hadn't had previously. And they've got it from several sources now. Luke Dowhouse, uh, Tom Atkins, uh, Grind Myers, um, he was, Gar- Gary Rowan. Grind Myers is a great pickup. Rowan was Gary Rowan. To a T, you can put him in a Swans jumper, a Geelong jumper, or the Paddle Pop Lion suit. He's going to be the same. At times, brilliant, mm. a beautiful kick at goal, injury prone, yeah. spasmodic. Unfortunately, Dalhouse really petered out towards the end of the season. But Brian Myers, what a find he was. The, the thing about Geelong is their, their defence is uh, they've got a fantastic defence. But we talk about their forward line needing this and that. For a couple of years now, their forward line actually put scores on the board. Um, I think, uh, did they end up top three for both defence and uh, attack, I think? Um, They're also, their forward line is very efficient. Oh, they were second for points scored last year. Efficiency, they were number one. And they've been high for efficiency for a while. So when they get their chances, they really make them count. So... I think across the board, you're right about the ruck, um, but I don't think they're far off. They really do need to settle down, decide on one premier sort of ruckman, and they did that with Stanley last year until... Until they, they departed from him with for Blitzavs against Collingwood in the final. Yeah, that was a, a costly selection call, that one. The I like their defence. Stewart and Blitz, Stewart's a great defender. Yeah. Isn't it amazing they had Corey Enright and then Tom Stewart? They're yeah. very similar types from yep. nowhere, really. Blitzarves is best in defence. He's good. He's good. Yeah, another one who's underrated down there is Collard uh, Jasny. Mm-hmm. Um, he, I, I think he's been... In fact, someone was wrapping up. I can't remember the analogy, but um, he, he doesn't get talked about enough, I don't think. He's a very good player. Yeah, it, Guthrie's a player who they've sort of overlooked and then come back to. I don't mind him as a player. He's run with Rolt Cannon. Oh, he had a bit of a renaissance last yeah, year, yeah, I think. I, so. I like him a bit. So you see them as a major premiership player? No. Again, I, I, I tend to underestimate them a bit, but even if they finish top four, mm. which I think that they're probably more likely to finish fifth to eighth in my estimation, or fifth to tenth even, We've got this problem that I feel, and it seems proven by the results, that their position is artificially inflated by playing at Cardinia Park. Now, that's not their fault. It's great. They take advantage of it, but it does get found out in finals against better teams than the MCG. It appears to be the case. Why? I'll tell you what, they fought tooth and nail to play at Cardinia Park, so they feel that there might be a reason... The MCG might not be the best place for them to play footy. Yeah, I, I, I think they proved their legitimacy last year, so I've got them as a very serious player. Speaking of which, our last club we'll look at this week, and we'll do this every week, these guys are as interesting as anyone heading into next year, I think. And I must say, I, I sort of had no particular feeling about it, but when I sat down and sort of crunched the numbers and 
uh, looked at the the list and et cetera, et cetera, I came away thinking, gee, they are a, a chance to really do something, and it's the Western Bulldogs. Yep. Now, a real year of two halves for them. They only won four of their first 11 games of the season, but after the mid-season break, different team altogether, and they won eight of their last 11 to reach finals, of course, smashed by GWS, uh, basically didn't turn up in that elimination final. But they've got a lot of things going for them. Um, Now, I'll run through a few of them. Uh, One of them is their flexibility. They've got something in the order of more than 20, and it sounds remarkable, but they've got about 20 guys who can all be part of that best 22 who are essentially midfield-type players who can play through the midfield or play forward or play back. And who are we talking about there, apart from the <clears throat> the obvious stars in the midfield that are Bontempelli, McRae, uh, Dunkley, Hunter, etc., etc. Um, but you're talking about guys like um, Caleb Daniel, who switched to a halfback flank. Um, you've got a, another effective runner who's sort of by proxy almost a midfielder in Johannesson. Even up forward, you've well, got... Hang on, how about the guy that, by the way, has become an absolute... Uh, Instagram sensation or social media sensation, the mullet from Malvern. Have you heard about this? Oh, Bailey Smith. Have no. Right. Mullet so from a, East Malvern. There's a photo of him doing the rounds. Oh, uh, no. From his holiday. Yeah. In a pair of board shorts. Oh, yeah. Uh, to say the girls are interested in Bailey, I mean, he's got a magnificent body, good-looking rooster, great kid too, by the way. He is. And it is just, it's all around the world. You know, but this he's become the epitome of the bronze good-looking Aussie. Well, it's all right, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, because um, my mum lives about five doors down and I'll be asking her to keep an eye on young Bailey, East Melbourne's finest mullet. But he's very much a part of that midfield. But, and and well, also representative of the group of youngsters they've got coming through who, who have been fantastic for them. We're talking about uh, Richards. We're talking about Sergeant Lipinski. Yeah, I mean, Richards... And um, who's the other one that the, the forward that kicks a few goals? Um, it'll come to me. But maybe have yet to play four quarter football on a four on a, on a season basis. I think Richards is on the verge of it. May I add? Don't forget Riley West, uh, another one to emerge. Yeah, look, they've, <clears> got, they've got a a plethora of, of midfielders. Their midfield, it's powerful. It's possession winning. Does it need to be streamlined a bit? There's a lot of possessions won there. We know that McRae and Hunter are great ball winners. Can they ramp their game up just a little bit? Because they've got, in Bontempelli and Dunkley, yeah. they've got these big, powerful midfielders. Well, here's... Well, Do I, they need a bit of... It takes more silk in that midfield. Can no, they develop I, that? Well, I, I think that's what they did in the second half of the year. Now, they, they are uh, arguably the quickest playing side in the year. And I don't, I'm not just talking about league speed, but the speed with which they move the ball. They've got very good forward half pressure. Um, they're a prolific handballing team. So one of the uh, lowest kick-to-handball ratios. They were third for points scored, despite finishing seventh on the ladder and uh, yep. winning, what, 12 games. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of that pressure game, they were third, They ranked third behind Richmond and Geelong for points scored on the turnover. Uh, also convert a lot of those turnovers to scores. Yep. So um, their ball movement, I think, significantly improved in the second half of the year. And here's the big clincher for me in terms of likely improvement. 
you'd say maybe they're a bit thin up forward in terms of key position. You'd say maybe they're a bit thin down back in terms of key position. They were, because Norton was sometimes sort of um, action following. You know, we need him down forward, but he's got to go down back. Okay, so uh, Perfect gr- recruiting. great pickups with Josh Bruce for the forward end and Alex Keith yeah. for the back end. Bruce and Keith. Good pickups. We should mention Sam Lloyd, how good he was. He was terrific. Yeah, he was terrific for them. Um, So, yeah, I I think they've got uh, plenty to be optimistic about. And uh, it's been a remarkable story how uh, they've almost sort of rebuilt that premiership side, but they've done it sort of in the space of three years and ready to go again. Um, All right. Well, well, I've got to say, I've pinned them in as one of three teams that can challenge Richmond for the flag. Yeah. Yeah, no, I don't don't think that's a a stretch at all at this stage. I have them top four as a result. Yeah, I haven't done my ladder yet, but uh, certainly wouldn't um, shy away from that prediction. Just would like to see Tim English become a... You know, a, a, a ruckman of substance, of consequence. Well, he's he's certainly got plenty of promise. All right, we'll look at another three clubs next week. Just to finish off a new segment this week, uh, a quick switch of sports. Now, we both had our two bobs worth about the BBL last week. Well, you've got to say, in individual terms, um, the competition delivered over the, <laughs> over the weekend. Two of the best, uh, well, Arguably the best T20 innings ever played, certainly in this country. Marcus Stoinis on Sunday night for the Stars against the um, Sixers. 147 not out from 79 balls, 13 fours, 8 sixes. Beat the previous highest score of Darcy Short, 122. Um, He made 100 off 60 balls, which is, you know, okay. Uh, 47 off his last 19 balls. And that followed on from Friday night when Glenn Maxwell played another of the great T20 innings, 83 not out from 45 balls, seven sixes, and the last 49 of those runs coming from 16 deliveries. Amazing, that finish. It was a cavalcade of just incredible power hitting. Yeah, I mean, Stoinis, the only 147 I've seen had 15 reds, 15 blacks, and all the colours. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was... It, it it was, was that... that, that uh, second last over? Yeah. Where he just kept hitting sixes? It's just remarkable to watch it uh, and a uh, pleasure to uh, to be sitting in front of a TV. And a 200 run it. partnership. To Incredible. Start the innings is amazing, isn't it? Uh, yeah, was that a record as well? One for 219, yeah. that finished up. Third that, third highest score. score. The, it makes you, begs the question why he's in Australia, not playing for. Why is he not in Australia, not in India, playing well, for Australia? Wouldn't you say both of them? Maxwell and Storms? Well. <laughs> Don't get me started. The I wonder whether or not for Stoinis, his bowling has counted against him a bit. Yeah. I mean, they use him as a bowler, so leave him alone. Don't bowl him. He's such a powerful hitter. Yeah. That, oh, as an all-rounder, maybe he's not a great bowler. So don't bowl him. Yeah, look, it was uh, it was fantastic to watch. All right. Um, <laughs> not followed up by great fielding by the Stars, I must say. No, but they you know, they were entitled to be a bit uh, lackadaisical, true, weren't they? True. Game was in the back. All right, there's enough news for this week. Time now, finally, to talk about Life Matters. Life Hacks. Building a better world. All right, this can go in any sort of direction. Uh, you kick us off this week, your first life hack. I've got to say, you, there's nothing I am more excited about with my children than passion. Because I think kids now nowadays have a tend or can tend 
especially with the problems with screens and just locking themselves away on their phones and iPads, to lack that passion about things that I think you're famous for, for example, Rowan, with politics and with music and footy, and, and I guess I was known for hard-on-sleeve sort of stuff, and I wondered whether my boys had it. But on Friday, they had it, and I loved it. There was a protest in the city uh, for Scott Morrison and climate change, and they were in their rooms, locked away for about two hours, they went to it, it rained, but my son came up with this brilliant placard that they held. I thought it was brilliant. What was it? Um, it's too late to step up, Scott. That means it's time to step down. <laughs> nice. And, nice. And they were leading a chant, and apparently the police filmed them, so he filmed them back. And Really? Yeah. Wow. Uh, I think they were filming the crowd, you know, and just, he, he they learned a lot, and the younger brother also was quite engaged. Now, I'm not saying I necessarily agree totally with their politics, but I love passion. And I think any parent, and if you're an uncle, an auntie, whatever, whether or not you agree with some of the things your kids and younger people in your life are passionate about, that's not important. Foster passion. Yeah, no, that's. Uh, I'm very impressed with the uh, the young fine boys. Well done, lads. And uh, I wonder if they would have been subjected to, um, whilst the, the protest was on, um, I'm getting a lot of trolling, which I'm about to speak about. Um, I, someone said to me uh, something like, oh, I'm surprised you're not there with all the other unwashed ferals, at which point I said, what, like my sister, and block them. You know, So uh, th- this is a generational thing. I-, I think it's... Is Scott Morrison an unwashed feral? Because he certainly recognised climate change on the weekend. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, I'm not saying... Look, you can have your, poli- you can have your political standpoint, but... As every single, as the pins fall, even amongst the sceptical, why would people who are passionate about it and march about it be just lumped in with professional protesters who are, who are in brackets, unwashed ferals? I mean, this affects us all now and in the future. Yeah, and I, I think the uh, the vibe in the community has certainly changed, and I think there's certain media organisations that have failed to pick up on that. Wake up and smell the smoke. All right. Well, I'm uh, sort of a follow-on to this. Uh, it's been an interesting week on Twitter for me, Finding I know you don't look at Twitter, so you're probably oblivious to this, but um, there's nothing like uh, you can be as reasoned as you like and rational as you like and, uh, you know, you. it sort of passes. Nothing gets the Twitter folk on board or excited more than a stouch with yeah. someone of a reasonably high profile. And I had a couple of them, actually, but oh, the, well the most notable one was with Joe Hildebrand of uh, Studio 10, that uh, Channel 10 morning show with Ida Buttress. Well, Joe is a bit of a legend in his own lunchtime. Uh, anyway, he was, uh, he's was he been annoying a lot of people because he does this sort of, I'm going to be the sensible centre type person, and there's all these... Is that the guy with the big chin? Uh, he's got glasses and a beard. Yeah. He's sort of like the nerdy kid at, at school. He would have got his head flushed a lot, which is why he's sort of overcompensating as an adult. But um, he he loves playing this. I'm Mister Sensible Centre, and there's all the the you know irrational people on either on left on the left of me and on the right. So I'm going to be the voice of reason. And he sort of takes it to extremes. Anyway, he came out with this really trite series of points about the bushfire situation and he wanted everyone to say oh joe you've summed it up so beautifully and it wasn't the reaction he got anyway one of his this is what happened i think it was last wednesday night i was about to go to bed you know i was getting a bit tired and cranky 
And one of his flunkies sort of uh, tweeted or, or tweeted me saying, oh, I just saw this from Joe Hildebrand, tagged him in, said, fair enough. And I looked at it and I said, no, it's not. It's really sort of pat and uh, doesn't really address the points. And anyway, I just A, a brief example of what it was? Oh, I'd have to... Oh, I knew you'd do this. Oh, just, there the, were four points. There was is one. Um, you know, both the left and right have uh, hijacked, um, or have prevented us moving ahead on oh, climate So the bleeding change. obvious, uh, you know, sort of sound bites of... Yeah, but it was. But they're also, you know, um, time to unite. Uh, All the, Australians. The, the bushfires aren't just about cli- uh, haven't been just caused by climate change. Well, no one ever argued they were caused by climate change. And I've had that one five hundred thousand times. Uh, we all need to pull together. It was yeah, sort of this crap. So yeah. it got held down. Anyway, I, I just responded to this other person asking me the question, who tagged him in, and I said, uh, no, I think it's really trite. Um, uh, in fact, I said, Joe's uh, voice of reason centrist thing gives me the shits to the point I can't be bothered responding. Plus, he works for the most reprehensible newspaper in the country, the Daily Telegraph. So it was a bit bitey. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, straight away he's come back. And so himself he, or the... Or, <laughs> no, he or, or came, young Hild, Hildebrand came Not young himself. flunky. Not young flunky. He'd run away to the hills. Yep. So uh, Joe's come back with, uh, well, just uh, prove one point. And um, I just ignored it. Then he sends another one. He goes, come on, come on, you can do it. Just one, sarcastically. So then I start getting angry. So I just answered him the four points very quickly in point form. If you want to see all this, it's on my Twitter feed. Um, And I left it at that. And I said, uh, I think I finished off saying, look, Joe, um, get your ego stroke somewhere else. I'm going to bed. Good night. And he came back again. And you know what he did finally? He pushed me over the edge. He champed me. What's that? He champed me. He called me champ. Oh, listen, champ. Yes. He said, no, what he said was, and actually- At midnight, a midnight champing. Uh, yeah. He said, I don't even know who you are, champ. You came on to me. And so I was literally about to turn off the computer. I said, right. So I quote tweeted him and I wrote on top of it, no, mate, one of your flunkies asked me a question and tagged you in. Next, I really don't give a flying F- if you know who I am. Sadly, I do know who you are, though. Probably the most rampantly vacuous egotist I've ever seen in my 36 years in the media industry. Really. F-R-O. And I went to bed. I got up the next morning. I'd acquired about 700 new <laughs> Twitter followers. Really? That tweet has now been liked uh, 3,200 times and retweeted 352 times. And I did block him too after that. I thought, bugger that. No, I, keep at him. I, oh, I, I know who he is. I dislike, he's got an opinion about everything. Oh, but, but being he knows, the, he knows the name of the unknown soldier. He's yeah. he's better placed to talk about matters of the womb than women. I mean, he's he's hitting a bit. Being champed was the final straw for me. I don't think, uh, I think that Listen, was champ. just a, a bridge too far. So no, that was one. And just as an addendum... Um, and uh, this one was a little more concerning. I got trolled by uh, a well. In fact, I'm not even going to name him because he'd love that. Because he, the only reason he saw that I'd referred to him in a tweet was obviously by searching his own name because I didn't tag him in. A well-known uh, in Melbourne, uh, what we call right-wing nut job. He's a far-right extremist, and um, he's uh, he's a. Dangerous man. Anyway, he sent a really nasty. Who is he? 
Well, I'm, I don't want to name him, but okay. he sent a quite nasty tweet about me allegedly bullying a woman of colour who was in the media scene, and yeah. uh, I'll leave you to okay. put two and two together. But, it, but he's a, a right, far right wing, so yeah. why, is he, why is he worried about you allegedly Oh, being because racist? I said I referred to someone else saying, oh, look at this person, they retweet the likes of Paul Watson, who's a complete nutter, uh, Mark Latham, and this bloke. Okay. And uh, anyway, but the thing about bu- bullying a, a a woman of colour, I just found it really ironic given that this guy, uh, who's appeared in court several times over the last couple of years, in July last year, was convicted of unlawful assault against his former wife for throwing a chopping board at her. Cool. If you want to look this up, you'll find it. But I'm not. I'm not going to even sort of dignify this bloke with by naming him. But uh, he's he's a well known. Right-wing extremists. So, it's Twitter's getting a bit real for me. I'm getting um, I'm, careful out there. I'm getting strategically trolled. You know, mm-hmm. like there are people sort of setting up accounts to troll me, and it's all getting a bit draining, to be honest. But so, that's and it's all based on your politics. Really, yeah, yeah, it? yeah. No, that's what happens when you throw your hat into the political ring. Uh, it can get very nasty. Anyway, interesting week on Twitter. You're up. Okay, a four-legged friend. Now, I, I, I was tossing up whether to say this because I know that you've recently lost your beloved family pet. Mm-hmm. Are you getting back on board? Oh, in time. I mean, we've got a, we've got a cat, a, a new cat, um, we've, we've had for a year. But yeah, but, but they're cats. No, Not the like cats, cats are bad, but they've got their own agenda. Yeah, look, we may. We may. Um, yeah, probably need some money to buy one. Well, we lost our family pet, Sally. And Sally had a companion in Ruby, and we felt it was unfair for Ruby to be alone, so we now have Willow. Now, Willow is a border collie. They are a handful, but they, with a lot of exercise and mental stimulation, are gorgeous dogs. Mm. They're actually not um, lap dogs. They're not always there to be, you know, hugged and patted, but they're great down at the park. She's a beautiful-looking border collie with blue eyes, and they're called lilac and white in colour. Boy, do you meet a lot of people. You just meet people, and people are so friendly with dogs. Oh, through having dogs. At a dog park. Yeah. It just makes me wonder why people need a circuit breaker or something to to allow them to talk to somebody else to see the better side of people. And I I don't know, either get a dog or think like you have a dog. Because you put 20 people in a park without a dog, they'll be, you know, what's he doing here? It looks a bit stuffed. I went down to two dog parks on the weekend, one Barkley Park in Richmond, the other one in Elstonwick, and everybody talks, interacts. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good point. Same with the dog beach in Elwood. And we, oh, we, and we go to that as well. Yeah. We go to the Port Melbourne one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a, well, you know they use dogs now in like hospitals with yeah. kids and in old folks' homes. With and, kids with um, autism. Yeah. And it, it's such a – it shows that we actually have a decent – um, side to us, and we are willing to communicate and share time with other, with strangers. Mm. But you just need that circuit breaker. Yeah, no, that's a that's a really good point. I like that one. All right, uh, I'm coming up with a sporting one now. Now I mentioned uh, the Stoinis's remarkable innings. Well, I didn't see the first half of that because I was watching the A League game between Melbourne Victory and Central Coast Mariners. Did you hear about this game? No, I, no, I didn't because I watched the cricket. It was insane. Um, <laughs> well, well, it was one all um, until the seventy eighth minute when um, 
a, a bizarre own goal where across a from the victories, oh, I can't remember who it was, one of the defenders, but it was supposed to be across, and instead it hit the post, cannoned off the um, upright into onto the shin of a defender and into the goal for a bizarre own goal. So mm-hmm. they led to one. David, uh, my son, who I watched the games with, says to me, and we both sort of had that feeling, he said, something crazy is going to happen right at the end. Well, did that happen or what? Because there were two penalties awarded to Central Coast Mariners in injury time. Two penalties yes, in injury time? One in the 94th minute, which allowed them to level the scores, and then one in the 100th minute, which oh, enabled them to win the game. Both penalties scored by Matt Simon, who'd only come on as a sub. Who has played for Melbourne Victory. Halfway through the second half. But the thing, VAR, Fawny, it's destroying the game. It completely... Oh, see West Ham on the weekend? Well, no. Well, well it cost us. Yeah. Oh, actually, I did see that. I did oh. see that. That's right. They they levelled, yeah. didn't they, against... Who was that against? Sheffield United. Yeah. In a vital one point required... I just hate VAR. It's well, this every major decision in this game basically rode on the VAR. Now, the first penalty, it, it was a handball. Like James Donachy went up behind Simon, and his arms went up, and the book ever so slightly brushed his arm. And the referee in the first instance actually awarded a free kick to victory. Yep. He he thought it um, it was Simon who'd handled the ball. VAR checked, and they awarded the penalty. The last one was very, pretty soft, I thought, and the referee awarded it. VAR confirmed, and it was uh, Lee Broxham, bit of a shove on, who was the player? Michael McGlinney, I think, or Glinley. For, yeah, McGlinchey. Uh, um, is it? Yeah, there is a McGlinchey. Yeah, yeah, for the Mariners. But... It was like, every, and, and then there was a disallowed goal for the Mariners previously, which was just fractionally offside. So many of these VAR calls now are so marginal. But it, it is ridiculously marginal. You know, measuring yeah. up, it's, it's, it's called the, you know, it's now called the toe. A, a, a toe difference between two players. Look, the whole spirit of the offside rule is that players line themselves up with other players. It's a skill to not get caught offside. Mm-hmm. And to be roughly equal with a player is considered onside. So yeah. In line. Yeah. But then to freeze it and to, you know, pull, pull out a, a, a slide rule is well, not in the spirit of the game. Well, this is a problem. When you introduce this technology, how can you, and you can say, as we do, it was only meant to be for howlers. Yeah. But how do you draw the line of what's a howler and what's a permissible? And error? how do you go once you've seen the once you've seen Paris? How do you get the game back on the farm? I mean. The problem is that one of the real problems in all sports is if VAR is and, and goal reviews are not used, then the replays shown by TV networks are there just to embarrass the game. Okay, so what do you do? Can you say so you're saying we can't scrap VAR now? Yeah, I, I think that they can definitely bring it back to howlers. Look, yeah, but, but where do you? What's right, the cutoff of a okay, howler? Here's the thing with cricket. They made an adjustment to the ball tracking. So now a lot more balls are umpires' call. Yeah. Because the umpires were getting disenfranchised. Yeah. And that ball tracking's bullshit anyhow. It did you you just watch it and you know it's it's Yeah, there was a couple in the test series. It, it's programmed. It's 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 a mathematical program. Yeah. So they re readjusted it, recalibrated it to give the umpires more of a 
st- say in the game because yeah. the umpires were saying, well, stuff it, we're just... Well, can they do that with VAR, do you think? Well, I think they need to really have a philosophy of howlers. And I think an offside needs to be a clear body, you know, between the players. Yeah, okay. Well, there has to be, yeah, okay. If they can find a definition of what is a permissible mistake, I, I agree with you. Incidentally, just in terms of controversy and whatever, the last 10 minutes of this mad game also featured an all-in dust-up, which is pretty rare in soccer, yeah. featuring Matt Simon. This that was in about the that was before the first penalty, so the ninety third minute or something, and then after the winner, the second penalty, uh, Marco Kurtz, the victory manager, got sent got red carded. So, just, so this really sort of um, stops, brings a dead halt to the momentum of victory. Who had a great win the week before? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a costly, costly loss for him. And yep. remember that they were actually leading in injury time and lost. Um, but just in terms of incident, the A-League, some of the things that have happened in A-League, like, you know, goalposts breaking and the replacement goals coming on, Brisbane Raw's numbers falling off and them using sticky tape instead. The sauce bottle mascot at Central Coast giving the uh, two-fingered well, salute to the, the gold, crowd. Gold Coast's ill-fated foray into the A-League, but, you know, with, what's his name, the big... Who's that big oh, bloke? the racing guy. No, 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 the big bloke that ran for Palmer and Palmer. Oh, yeah. So he funded it, yeah. but, but he decided that there was too much riffraff on the Gold Coast. He didn't want them in at the ground, so he made the cheapest seats $50. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's an interesting competition. Well, there is a suggestion. There's a rumour that it's going to move to winter. Uh, yeah. That would be the death yeah. of it. Well, I was talking to Ned Zellich about that on Twitter, actually, and he, he was uh, very against the move. Some people are, are for it. It would be the death knell of it. It can't compete against the major football codes. Well, it's having trouble competing with the summer calendar now, but it would be even harder in winter, I think. But they claim it led to the integrity of the competition, enable them to recruit better players from around the globe and step in... You know, marks in tune in 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 stride with other major football. It's almost clubs. a mission of defeat, really. Which are, you know, it's yeah, not a good. It's look. not going well. Um, all right, your uh, last one. My prejudices run very deep. You'll understand when I get to the end of this yarn. So I was watching a very good show, Robson Green. He's an an Englishman. He goes fishing around the world, but he also he he had a hit single like thirty years ago. One song, apparently. But he's a real character, and he's do, done a series on Australia, state by state by state. And he went to Queensland, and he went into the Daintree, because there's a small population that actually live in the Daintree. They're sort of off-grid. And he was with this family, a, a husband, wife, and a daughter, and they are totally self-sufficient. Their cars and all their um, electric, everything that requires generating runs on fish and chip shop oil. Because there's one in the Daintree, there's this one big pub that is famous for fish and chips and they use a huge amount of oil and he's worked out a way to convert it into a, a usable petrol for a car. And it's all very interesting. And he's so, they're totally self-sufficient. He gets drunk and he makes brilliant art out of it and I hated him because halfway through the story I realised he was wearing an Essendon cap. <laughs> Essendon have done some great marketing work up the uh, top end of Australia over the yeah, years. Yeah, it's right, like up, you know, right up the top. And I'm thinking, is that? And then they showed it. And I thought, oh, you <laughs> All right. Uh, well, my final life hack uh, is a sad one. 
Um, and I'm sort of going to talk about this. Uh, no, I'm talking about something else. But um, one of, another of my rock heroes passed away at the weekend, and I speak of Neil Peart, the drummer oh. from Rush. Um, thank God, not the other Neil Peart, of course. Oh, thank God, yeah. But uh, he's a good footballer. Yeah, he was. But and I've done that joke so many times. But uh, yeah, I know Rush. Interesting. I'll talk about this later as well. But Neil Peart. Uh, was 67. Um, a lot of people, in a lot of people's opinion, the greatest rock drummer of all time. But uh, a really, really interesting human being. Uh, people might know I'm a big fan of Rush, and they're three amazing guys in their own way, and so sort of humble and down to earth and understated. But uh, he died of brain cancer, and People didn't even know that he'd been sick. They um, finally pulled the pin on touring and performing and recording about five years ago, uh, after about 40 years almost on the road. Um, and one of the reasons given was that he was, you know, he was tired and all the drumming had taken a toll. If you want to, I suggest just uh, get on YouTube and look up Rush or Neil Peart, P-E-A-R-T, have a look at the sort of kit that he plays. It's just ridiculous, but technically an incredible drummer. And a bloke who'd already, um, a really interesting guy, incredibly well-read, voracious devourer of of books, and he's written a lot of books, uh, knows a lot about a lot, um, had been through tragedy already. In 1997, his 19-year-old daughter was killed in a car accident. And only, um, I think, about eight, nine months later, his wife died of cancer. So, you know, they put the band on hold for about five years after that. And uh, he took off on this sort of motorbike odyssey around the US and Canada and went to Asia and um, really well-travelled guy. And uh, some great stories have emerged. In fact, a guy I know, Jeff Hayden, who lives in the US and... He's a story in himself, Jeff, about how he came to footy. Rang me one day at the age in the late eighties about uh, being interested in footy and wanting to know more. Uh, anyway, who did Je- you put him onto? Uh, the AFL, who oh, the no, VFL. I was kidding. Oh, sorry. Uh, no, well, I, I, the VFL sent him a, a kit and a footy and everything. They were great. Yeah. And he's Jeff is a, a, a real aficionado, like and, like Lisa Albergo from Chicago, who's never been out of Chicago. Yeah, and is completely okay with. Every player on every yeah, list. Yeah, no, it's great stories like that. Anyway, Jeff uh, wrote this story for LinkedIn on the weekend about his chance encounter with Neil Peart at a like a roadhouse cafe, and he sat down and you know started talking to this stranger and realised it was Neil Peart and had a fantastic conversation with him. Anyway, lovely guy and um, yeah, really sad. And so many of my rock heroes have died over the last five or ten years. Um, it's uh, it's quite sobering, finding, but that that's my last one. Well, good mate of mine, and, and I think you know him as well. Great character, real funny bloke, TV freak Scotty Goodings. Oh yeah, is in mourning because of the passing of his TV hero. He always said he loved this character. Who wasn't Cat Weasel? <laughs> okay, the guy who played Cat Weasel yeah, passed okay. away. I didn't know that. I didn't see For that. For people that don't know, Cat Weasel maybe the strangest show ever. Uh, it's, it's a a vagabond from Merlin's times, time travels into the 70s. Yeah. And, you know, is surprised at every turn that, I'm, you know, 
Dark Ages magic doesn't work in 1973. Hed- Hednesford, South London, you know, it's really weird. <laughs> Scott Goodings knows his TV, doesn't he? He certainly I, does. I remember that. Madsen killed a man too. All right, that's enough for life hacks this week. I think, uh, speaking about time travel, I reckon it's time we travelled back to a significant year to talk about movies, music and TV. Vinyl and video. Pressing rewind on our favourite music, movies and TV. Rightio, Finey. It was my turn to choose the year this week. And uh, we've had a few around this, Mark. But this is a particularly interesting year, I think. So I have gone for 1981. Great choice. Okay. Well, let's start with music, as we do. And uh, you lead us off. What is your pick of music, 1981? Make no bones about it. This was, for me, probably the most important album that I ever got. Or it was a cassette, actually. I would then go and see the documentary on which it was based. The name of the album was Erg, A Music War. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it introduced me to a, a, just a, a plethora of alternative punk and just non-mainstream music that excited me. There were bands, it was the first time I heard The Cramps. Yeah. Div- a very, you know, a developing Devo was highlighted, but also Wall of Voodoo. Um, uh, more mainstream, Debbie Deborah Harry was, yeah, and the Go Go Girls. But then there was just so much interesting music in it, and and, and powerful stuff that I still like today. The, the Au Pairs, uh, oh yeah, uh, um, gee, they had a song called "Come Again," which is a really fantastic song. Just Alternative act after alternative act. A lot of them out of West Coast, USA and England. Yeah. And gee, it changed my take on music completely because I began to look outside the top 40 and found what I enjoyed the most. Uh, interesting when a movie soundtrack is interesting in itself, I reckon. There's I mean, a... the movie, it was just a documentary of these bands playing. Yeah. Erg. How do you spell Erg? U-R-G-H. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But, but I'll give you some of the songs just very quickly that were on it. I, I love a song called Back in Flesh by Wall of Voodoo. Yeah. Which was, a, a, I think, a fantastic song. Um, Echo and the Bunnymen, the oh. first time I heard them. The what pu- was the song? The Puppet. Gee, that must be off their first album. Um, but, again, it was just interesting after interesting after interesting. Yeah. And it was hard to find music outside the top 40 Unless you really, when you were under 18, yep. I, was, I was 15, 16 yeah, at the time. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't go to pubs. Yeah. And this was, this opened my eyes. No, good call. Like it. Like it. Uh, one movie soundtrack that comes to mind, I, don't, I tend not to like them, but uh, I always thought The Crow had a very good musical yeah. soundtrack. And that, no, now I'm struggling to remember who was on it. I know Helmet was on that, but um, there you go. No, I like that one. Erg Music Wall, uh, War. If you want to look that up, all right. I'm now. I mentioned Neil Peart in my life hacks. Uh, I'm going. Oh, first, here's some of the other big albums from 1981. So we had. Uh, you mentioned Devo. New Traditionalists came out in uh, 81. An album which, if you were a countdown watcher, you couldn't possibly escape, and it was massive. Dare by Human League. That it, was that at the time one of the. Certainly not the biggest selling album. The biggest selling album of that new that oh that yeah movement no it was of, massive. Uh, what was on it? Uh, Don't you Planet want Earth. me? 
Uh, no, that's Duran Duran. Oh, it's Human League. Sorry. Okay, so Human League. Um, Don't you want me? Yeah, and baby. Uh, love girls action. On, girls on. F- no, that's Duran Duran. Oh, so it's Human League. All right, I got to get this right. Yeah, you're right. It is different. Okay, but it, yeah, was Phil Oakey and the yeah, two yeah, girls okay. and Molly Meldrum loved him. Anyway, it was big. Yeah. Uh, Tattoo You by the Rolling Stones. Uh, Ghost in the Machine by the Police. Uh, I really like that. And The Who's final album, Face Dancers. Big year in Australian music releases too, Finey. And uh, yep. I had all these albums and loved them all. Underneath the Colours in Excess. Cats and Dogs, Mentals Anything. Place Without a Postcard, Midnight Oil. A lot of Oils fans like that more than any other Oils album. One of my favourites, Mio 245, Screen Memory. I love Mio 245. I loved Mio 245, mate. Local and or general by the models. And uh, big hello to Sean Kelly and uh, Andrew Duffield and all the boys, if you're listening. And uh, Split Ends Corroboree, which is a great album on a par with True Colours for me. So big album for a big year for Australian New Zealand rock. However, I'm going with Rush, the band Rush, the album Moving Pictures, which was their eighth album. Now, we've talked, I think we've talked before about how this was one of those bands that was massive elsewhere in the world but just never got played here. To give you an idea, this album uh, went was number one in Canada, but it got to number three in the US and number three in the UK. Sold over four million copies, so it went quadruple platinum. Uh, what is on it, you ask? Well, their best-known song in, in Australia, certainly, and probably the only one I can remember actually ever hearing on the radio is Tom Sawyer. Uh, other, uh, other sort of popular songs on moving pictures, Red Barchetta, uh, a famous instrumental, YYZ, Limelight, um, The Camera Eye, Witch Hunt and Vital Signs. Only a seven-track album because one of those tracks, The Camera Eye, goes for about ten minutes. But this was, uh, it was a bit of a crossover album for Rush where they sort of left prog rock behind as such and became a more mainstream rock-sounding band. And uh, Tom saw a massive hit across the world encompassing the brilliant drumming talents of... Neil Peart. So that was my album of 1981. Let's talk about movies. Okay. I don't think it was a super year for movies, not from my perspective. It had the worst movie I've ever seen on Golden Pond. Oh, yeah. Uh, Henry Henry Fonda and Catherine Hepburn dying on their last great piece to film, their magnum opus in their older years. It ran for three hours, or as I prefer to say, for three months of my life, it felt like, and... It won a lot of awards. The oh, there were a few movies that I think Porky's came out that year, a bit of a, a, a teen Rudy. But Well, the, one of one of the massive franchise movies of the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I never gone into Oh really? Rolling Balls and Harrison Ford. Oh no, it's Raiders of the Lost Ark's not, pretty not, pretty good not, movie. Never, Barely ever saw it. In fact, in fact, the reason I didn't pick it, I thought you might pick it. No, so no, not into it. Uh, well, whilst we're talking about other big movies, I'll make sure none yep. of these are on your list. Um, Chariots of Fire, very good movie. But, yeah. But um, to me, a little bit, I think it was more the, more of a story than the real occasion. Uh, what else? Arthur. Uh, yeah, not for mine. Dudley Moore, not funny. Mad Max 2. Not for me. Uh, Postman Always Rings Twice. 
Not at my place. Oh, pretty sexy. Jessica yeah, Long and uh, Jack Nicholson. And the French Lieutenant's woman, Jeremy Irons and Meryl Streep, I think. I saw the French Lieutenant's. No, um, yeah, not for me. A lot of soppy movies there. A lot of dross. Don't you say it, Lieutenant, rather than Lieutenant? If you're, if, if uh, you're a wanker. so affected. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> um, so I went with Stripes. Now, Stripes is a movie of two halves. I think it's got a great first half and three quarters. And then it gets a bit silly when they end up in Europe in this sort of uh, special vehicle that was designed by the US Army and stolen by the gang. But great to see Bill, Bill Murray, I think, at his, when he was really doing the business. I don't think I've seen it, to Yeah, be I really liked it. The basic training was great. Okay, so give us a rough Okay, everything's going bad in his life. Sort of, he gets, he, he has this great line. He gets fired, his girlfriend leaves him. He sits down and he gets evicted from his apartment and he sits down on his bed and he just goes, and then depression set in. So he decides him and um, who's the glass guys with glasses um, that does all the writing for that stuff? He was in know. Ghostbusters I as well. I've seen it. No, he's in Ghostbusters as uh, well. Dan Aykroyd? No, is it Zemeckis uh. or... He, he's only in a couple of movies, but he's one of the writers. Michael Zemeckis? They... Enlist in the army. Two less army people you would never meet. And basic training is hilarious. They have a, a bust your balls Sergeant Hulker. Of course they do. Who busts their balls. And um, John Larroquette plays a, a particularly um, sort of a seedy and... He's good. He was great in Night, Night Court. Night Court, yeah. 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 He's, he's a sort of a dirty... Gen- you know, he's a general, but he's a perv. Yeah. He's got the glasses on... On some females having a shower, that's it. I'm your loofah. Use me, use me. Um, it's a kids. It's a teen movie. Uh, it's got some classic lines in it that sort of become the quotable quotables. Um, and I liked it. I didn't love it. I liked it. All right. And, and it has the famous na 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 na, and they sound oh, yeah. off um, because they do it, and then it turns into Louie Louie. You know what I think of when I hear that? The uh, ad Collingwood did for Mini Skips, their sponsor. Four one seven five O double O. I still remember. <laughs> well, I still remember it thirty years later. Well done. All right, well, uh, try and ring it. Yeah, no, you've got to put yeah, nine, nine in, in front, front of it. it. Yeah. Um, I'm going for an Australian movie. Uh, I'm, I'm a I'm a fan of Australian cinema, and this is uh, certainly one of the most commercially successful Australian movies. I think there's been better Australian movies, but it was it was pretty good and very affecting. Um, it uh, did very well at the box office here, grossed uh, twelve million dollars, which by Australian movie standards is pretty huge. Uh, eight AFI awards, uh, including best picture, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm talking about Peter Weir's Gallipoli, um, one of the early roles for Mel Gibson, and a guy who I thought was really good, but he sort of vanished. Uh, Mark Lee, not the former Richmond yeah, Ruckman, yeah. but they were in the two main roles. And uh, Gallipoli, well, I don't need to tell you what, what it's about, but basically these two young guys meet. They're both um, athletes. They're both runners, and uh, they meet at a athletics carnival in Western Australia and um, decide to enlist and it sort of follows their journey first to get to Perth to enlist and then they go to Cairo and then from Cairo to uh, the ill-fated Anzac Cove Um, 
and uh, who else is in it? Oh, some you know, real sort of staples of Australian cinema. Bill Kerr, uh, Bill Hunter. Uh, Bill Hunter was in virtually every Australian film of that era. And uh, it's really well done. It's um, there, There's been a few gripes about the historical accuracy of a few things. Uh, the sort of English general's role in um, subverting the attack that they were uh, they were asked to perform on the Turkish positions. Um, there's a few sort of quibbles about the historical accuracy, but it's really, you know, as much as a war movie, it's about relationships, I guess, um, between these young men who, you know, sort of travelled half a world away for adventure and uh, ended up losing their lives. And um, Mel Gibson is, is terrific as Frank, and uh, Mark Lee, I think, is terrific as Archie. And Peter Weir, uh, like a lot of Peter Weir movies, I, I thought it's really well shot. Um, and uh, if you haven't seen it, well well worth a look, Gallipoli, uh, 1981. And in fact, sorry, one, one thing I wanted to mention. Um, one of the most effective uh, things in it is the music. Oh, yeah. It's they power. use... Peter Weir's always been good with that, but yeah. That, yeah, well, they use... Um, Vangelis? Uh, no, it's uh, John Michael, Michael Jarre. Correct. I, uh, I often confuse them, yeah. Yeah, uh, Oxygen, which yeah, yeah. was a instrumental, and if I played it to you now, you'd recognise yeah, it. Yeah. came out in the late 70s. It sort of slows time down when they play it. Yeah. And it's, movement. And... It's funny how music sort of out of context can be really effective. So you've got this sort of... Um, you know, synthesizer type music yep. used with Gallipoli. It's like, and I've only, I haven't I've only seen a few episodes. Have you seen Peaky Blinders? No, I don't watch. Um, but no. that's uh, there. There are a few shows now, and that's one of them. They use modern music, modern yeah. music yep. to a historical setting, and it, it works quite well. Anyway, the use of that John Michael Jarre oxygen in in the a lot of the uh, sort of desert sequences and whatever is really effective. So if you haven't seen it, Gallipoli, nineteen eighty one, one of the best examples of Australian cinema. A very interesting movie because, in hindsight, but now you could watch Gallipoli, and since nineteen eighty one. And in no small part, the movie definitely played a role. You've got to realise, before 81, we were not celebrating our, our Anzac Day with any gusto. Mm. And we had a very sketchy, as a nation, understanding of Gallipoli and appreciation of the huge sacrifice for mateship that went on there. Yeah. So it really woke up the country. As an educational tool, yeah. We've become so woke, to use a term, now you might look back at it and find that it's not powerful enough or maybe doesn't go far enough to describe the utter futile nature of the landing. Yeah. It got me to Gallipoli. Yeah. That movie and the momentum created by it. Mm. In 1989, I went to Gallipoli. And yeah. Probably the most meaningful travel I've ever done. Now, that movie has to be set in context of its time as a very important Australian movie. That's a really good point. Actually, I read a story last night. I think it was Peter Weir. He he went to he got the idea um, when he went to Gallipoli. I think it was 1976, and he found on the beach an old bottle of Eno. Yeah. And apparently, I, I found bullets when I went there in '89 with a couple of mates. You walked into the. It was a. It was a reserve. Yeah. You walked in there, there was, up the top, there was an, a museum that was sort of unmanned, and we had free reign. You could walk anywhere up the cliffs. Yeah. You could take whatever you want. Yeah. 
bullet casings, we said, decided it was disrespectful to do that. There was so much shrapnel still there. Really? It's now completely yeah, yeah. cordoned off. But we had free reign. And have you ever been to um, Half Moon Bay? Yeah. The beach here in Melbourne. I can't tell you how similar it is. Could you imagine landing in Half Moon Bay with men in nested rifle positions at the top of Half Moon Bay and try and climbing up no. it? And that is, it's... Half Moon Bay is very similar to it, maybe on scale three quarters or half the size, but otherwise very similar. Suicide mission. Oh, it, it was haunting to be there. All right, let's talk TV. Uh, so TV 1981, what took your fancy? Absolutely one of my all-time favourites. Well, hang on, let me, t- uh, just a few examples yes. of, uh, it was the sort of era of the big American soap. So we'd already had Dallas and 1981 began Dynasty and Falcon Crest. Did you watch any of these things? No. Um I ended up watching Knots Landing in about the mid-80s when I was sick, home from work. Um, uh, The Fall Guy, Greatest American Hero, but you've gone for another American show. A lot of people point to Sopranos as being a great change in television in America, and it was, because HBO put invested so much in the Sopranos that it became, every episode became like a movie, and it upped the quality of TV across the board. Before Sopranos came Hill Street Blues in 1981, a really gritty and even today honest take of life in, it was never named as New York, but it was obviously New York, a police station on the hill, which was one of the more troublesome suburbs with a multicultural population spanning African American, Hispanic, Hispanic, white, Jewish, Italian. Now... The characters became very powerful in this. Frankie Ferrillo was the captain, played by Danny Travanti or Daniel Travanti. Joyce Devonport. Every episode ends with them. Them in bed. Which was pretty hot stuff because Veronica Hamill was pretty hot stuff. Um, Michael Conrad played Captain Esterhouse. He actually died, Michael Conrad, after three seasons. And they paid him the tribute in the show of saying that his character died the way he died, which was in the saddle, so to speak. Making, oh. making love. Um, Belka, Bruce Weitz. There was... Um, Who was the... Uh, Bobby Hill, was yeah, it? There was Bobby Hill. He, he was, was the black Michael guy, Michael Warren. There yeah. was a couple of black guys. Unfortunately, Bobby Hill, of course... I don't want to... You know, Bobby Hill, I think, the nickname... Because, you know, we've now got an AFL footballer, Bobby Hill, whose first name isn't Bobby. But uh, Oh, that's right. What is his first name? I'm not sure, but he's, he's known as Bobby Hill. But it's not after that. Sadly, there's another black character in it and they went for the obvious surname which I never like what? Neil Washington <laughs> oh, yeah. played ter- by, by Tareen Black as opposed to Freddie Boom Boom Washington well, he, from the, Welcome the Back the actor Fire. was Tareen Black not yeah. far from South Park's Token Black and yeah there were J.D. LaRue Keel Martin um, brilliant later addition was a character by the name of um, uh, now, his name is Guido Bunce, played by Dennis Freyd. That's a very... Oh, Dennis Franz. That, that's a, oh, yeah, I remember him, yeah. He was sort of the unwashed, yeah, greasy, pet guy. And he, he got his arrests outside the rules. Yeah, yeah. But there was always things going on, many story plots, powerful, yeah. a lot of filming on location. The police cars were great. They were old and dilapidated, and... It had that famous theme music, you know. That, that was it, yeah, wasn't pretty it? much. Yeah, and I think it elevated. We got away from shows like um, 
you know, uh, who, who was some Patrick Shelley. Yeah, I know he's very quick, but you know, yeah, those, it, was, it was the first of those real life. Yeah, so so we didn't have Quincy dramas, and Patrick Shelley yeah. and, and Jake and the Fat Man and all these sort of supercilious characters like Columbo. All right, uh, yeah, no, good call, great, great show. I didn't watch it enough, really, in retrospect. Um, uh, by the by, just since we talked about Seinfeld, I've started uh, IQing and watching old Seinfeld Me episodes too. I, again. And because you mentioned it, it's funny because I watched a, a little smattering of them yesterday. Yeah, well, I've, I've been watching season five, so I'm about to get to the marine biologist, which everyone says is one of the best ones. Oh yeah, but you know, this is it was George at his absolute best. Yeah, <laughs> when he when he when he refused to break up with a girl because some guy said that he was unreliable and would break up with her. So despite him, he kept going out with her. He's <laughs> great. All right, uh, now speaking of theme music, does this ring a bell? Do 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 do. Do, 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 do. Australia's longest running drivel. Do, 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 do. And of course, it is the theme from a Country Practice, which began in 1981, ran for 13 seasons until the end of 93, 1,058 episodes. At its peak, uh, according to Wikipedia, watched by up to 10 million people. Which I find a bit dodgy, given that the population around them was about 15 million. Which is great, because I certainly was not one of them. No, I, lost, I lost interest in that show after the first two syllables. Yeah, no, I, I yeah, it's uh, pretty sort of formulaic. But, uh, you know, look, some decent acting and some decent actors. Who are we talking about? We're talking about Brian Wenzel as uh, Sergeant Frank Gilroy, Lorraine Desmond, his wife Shirley, Joan Sidney as Maggie, Shane Porteous as uh, Dr. Terence Elliott. Georgie Parker, no, not the one we know, as Lucy. Um, Sid Halen, of course, the lovable cookie, cookie from yeah, a country practice. Was, who, it, was there a, a... He had a mate too, a Bob or someone, in big guy in overalls. Like a, there was a... The Late Show always used to reference. There was like a Mrs. Kravitz, practice. wasn't there? Or oh, um, the... Esme, yeah. the Esme Watson. The uh, there, there you go. I didn't have it written down, and I remembered it. I love the I love the ubiquitous the town gossip. Snoop, yeah, yeah, the town gossip, yeah, with the um sort of the Dame Edna average glasses, yeah, yeah. perfect. Uh, Grant Dodwell as uh, Simon Bowen. He was the vet. Penny Cook as Nurse uh, Vicky Dean. Uh, Anne Tenney as the tragic figure Molly, who. And this was the episode all Australia watched when uh, uh, Molly died of, I think, leukaemia she had. And um, all Australia shed a tear as she passed away peacefully. Not all of Australia. And uh, her squeeze, I think, uh, Shane Withington as Brendan Jones. And the lovable Fatso the Wombat. So uh, there it was. And I'm like you, Fonny. I I didn't watch much of it all. I did watch the uh, Molly passing away episode like most of the country but uh credit where it's due an australian uh, evening institution i think there used to be an episode monday and tuesday nights in fact that was the case with a lot of australian drama um cop shop was the same was I it think. set in a town uh i can't remember the name of the fictional country town but yeah i mean but it revolved around a, a, a vet's practice a hospital and uh, a cop shop of course so you combined uh, three uh, sort of Staples of soap opera in the one hit. <laughs> Clever. Maybe that's why it was so popular. Um, all right, there is enough for vinyl and video this week, Finey. I think it's time we ranted. On Footyology, the rant off. All right, I'm going to go first this week. Is that okay with you? 
I love it. Last week you were serious and brilliant. What are you going to be this week? Uh, I'm semi-serious. Oh, did you get a response to last week, by the way? Because I thought it was a really um, well-considered piece. Uh, well, I put it up on Twitter in the end. It got retweeted a bit. So, um, no, thank you, anyone who uh, who did like that. I thought um, Twitter was like 20 characters. No, uh, it was 180, 140 initially, and then they doubled it to 280. And you can write threads now, too. So you can... Okay. No, I, I just uh, screenshotted the text okay. and yeah, yeah. put it up as a uh, uh, an image, a JPEG. Uh, JPEG? Yeah. Or a Could, GIF or something, or something. Anyway, count me in. A golem. Three, two, one. I'm pissed off with getting old, Finey. <laughs> It's not all it's cracked up to be on those TV ads for superannuation where some grey-haired guy in a sensible polo top casually swings a set of golf clubs into the boot of his luxury car while his admiring wife lovingly pours a cup of tea into the finest china cup on the back veranda of their pristine suburban home. I call bullshit on superannuation, for starters. Why? Well, I've been working my ass off in the media industry for close to 40 years now, and I've accumulated a reasonable amount of that super stuff. So things are a bit tight in the money front right now, and I need to access a tiny bit of it to clear away some debt. Do you reckon I can? Not a chance. Not until I'm 60, or can demonstrate, quote, severe financial hardship, unquote. Check out the qualifications for that if you're interested. Essentially, unless you've got rid of your house and cars, eaten your pets, sold your kids into slavery, and have been offering cheap hand jobs on Grey Street St Kilda for a minimum of six months, you don't qualify. Sounds fair. By the way, what is it about the representation of older people in advertising? I see people supposedly in my own age group in TV commercials, and they still look like my parents. Do ad people think we all suddenly go from age 30 to lawn bowls playing Kenny G listening fuddy-duddies? We don't. I still think like I did in my 30s. I still feel the same way about things. I just feel like crap physically. Because getting old means tumbling out of bed each morning to nurse a variety of sore spots you've picked up because you're doing physical activity no middle-aged person should be required to do in order to lose those spare tyres that you've gained with each passing year. It means that a big Saturday night is no longer about parties or going to a gig with your mates, but sitting at home waiting for a a 2am phone call from your slightly intoxicated teenage children after they've been to the parties or gigs because they can't get a taxi or Uber at that time of night. Dates with your partner? Who's got time for that? You're both spending so much time trying to earn a crust so you can fund those kids' social expeditions that you're like ships in the night. The most time we've spent together lately is at funerals for an increasing number of friends, relatives and acquaintances. They're not the easiest settings in which to rekindle a relationship spark. Bugger getting old, Fanny. I want to be like the people in that retirement home in the movie Cocoon, jumping in an age-preserving swimming pool. In fact, bugger that. I just want to be perpetually stuck in 1993. At 28, I would have been around the block enough, but still physically able. Grunge music would be at a popular peak. Essendon would be reigning premier, and not without a finals win for 15 years. And most of all, just occasionally, I might even get lucky with the misses. Rowan, unfortunately, we are... I found... You're spot on, by the way. Once you turned 50, there was no turning back. I could... I could pretend right up until 50, but 50, no one buys it. No, no, it is it is a turning point, a really, really sad, <laughs> miserable, depressing turning point. 
Um, all right, let's not dwell on that. I'm going to count you in. Three, two, one, rant. Let's go to the audio. At least that's what Australian kids are now saying. Let's go to the video. Let's go to the TV. Let's watch the NFL. Hey, Super Bowl's coming up. What are you doing Super Bowl day? Are we watching it here? Are we going there? Are we betting on it this way or that way? Really? Uh, hey, don't touch that dial. The NBA's on. And it's not just Ben Simmons. It's every team everywhere from Pelicans to Oklahoma to this side and that side. Buccaneers, they're all important to Australian kids now because it's been rammed down their throats. And who's doing the ramming? TV networks, radio stations. Why? Because they attract advertisers who run betting agencies. And the betting agencies are hugely invested in two particular sports, basketball American and football American. So much so that kids now are desperate to watch games between Duke and Clemson in basketball or the University of Alabama taking on Alabama University in football. How did this happen? We have got our own indigenous sport, our great game of Australian rules. Rugby league, if you're a little bit affected by the sun north of Victoria for Sydney and and Brisbane people and their states. There's Rugby Union, not one of my favourites, but these are our games and we all unite for cricket. We love our swimmers every four years and bits and bobs thereabouts, hockey. Games played in the sun by Aussies that we're good at, that we loved. We even don't mind playing basketball the Australian way. But this absolute ramming down the throat of our kids... The, US, the USization of our children's sporting taste has a very sinister side. It's called gambling, it's called advertising revenue, and it's turning our kids into American sports lovers for all the wrong reasons. Interesting. Okay, I hadn't thought of it that way. I'm certainly aware of the creeping influence of US sports. In fact, you could turn on the radio a certain sporting radio station yesterday and hear the NFL uh, broadcast. There's no... Why? Why do you think that we are expanding so powerfully into American sport coverage? Basketball's hard enough to listen to uh, when you know the players, but when you don't know them, what's it doing on our radios and TV? Why are we watching it? Why are we getting involved in American college football? Because they're big spread betting games, they're big parts of multiples... And the bookmaking companies pour huge advertising dollars into programs that show them. No, I think that's a, a really good point. Excellent rant. I gave you full points for that. Uh, that's on the spread, because if you do, you get 10 to 9 odds. <laughs> that's just about it for this week. Um, quick thank you to our wonderful sponsors once again. By the way, if there's any bookmaking agency that would like to sponsor this program, <laughs> we have a spot available for US Sport. You know what? I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't shill for them. For US Sport? And, um, I wouldn't do it because a bookmaker came on board. And no. I wouldn't do it otherwise. So up your ass, American sporting Okay, let's not get too taste. precious. We no, might I'm- need the money. All right, speaking of uh, needing money. I like hamburgers. I like good burgers. I like Andrew's hamburgers. 144 Bridport Street. I get a burger with not everything. They've got the lot, and every burger they make is perfect. Really. I mean it. 144 Bridport Street, Albert Albert Park. Park. Andrew's hamburgers. And... Nick Spartels and Hardwick Bilko. Hey, you don't need to win Tats Lotto to put value on your house and make it commercially viable to do so. 
Talk to the bank, then talk to the best builders in town. Nick's Bartels and Hardwick. Build Co. You know where to go. Okay, that's it from us this week. Uh, we're going to leave you this week. I did allude previously to the sad passing of one of my rock heroes, Neil Peart, in my opinion, the greatest rock music drummer of all time, the drummer with the mighty power trio Rush. Uh, our year in music was 1981 this week, and that was the year Rush produced their most popular and most acclaimed album, Moving Pictures. The biggest hit off that and uh, biggest hit in the band's career was Tom Sawyer, a mighty rock song, great lyric, uh, lyrics uh, written by Neil Peart as well, great drum work from him. We're going to take you out with that. We'll see you next week. Sign on.